Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I said last week we're beginning a Christmas series, and you're probably wondering, well, why are we turning to 1 Peter 4 then? But we'll explain that as we go through the sermon this morning. And I remind you that we began this series last week. Uh, that is rooted in one of the statements made by the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Remember that great confession, the content of our faith. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. He was manifested in the flesh. He was revealed, made known, displayed for all to see. This is the the heart of the doctrine that we refer to and call the incarnation. It is God taking on human flesh. Now, of course, in this time of year, this season, we are confronted with many ways in which people view this time. For many, it's just a few extra days off from work. For retail stores, it's just a means to higher sales, more profits. For some, it's all about family and friends and spending much needed time together. For others, it's about how to avoid the pain of missing someone no longer here. For some, they overdose on Christmas songs on B101. For others, they like the food. But for Christians, this is the great meaning of the Incarnation which is what we focus on during this time of year, reminding ourselves of this great truth that God, our God, took on human flesh in the person of his Son and came in the fullness of time to redeem a people to the praise of his glorious grace. He was manifested. He was revealed in the flesh. And so in these four weeks of December, Pastor Fisher and I will be exploring why why this great truth is absolutely necessary for us to know and to believe, and what impact this doctrine of the Incarnation has upon every aspect of our lives. We may not think of it often this way at Christmas. In fact, we tend to think of it in one kind of focused way, which we'll get to at the end of our study, but there are many implications to this truth that God took on human flesh. He did it for a reason. It was absolutely necessary. And so we're going to look at four different passages in the New Testament where the Lord, through his servants, speak as to how the incarnation impacts who we are and how we are to live our lives. The first passage we're going to look at this morning, and they're not in order, but they're just randomly taken as we decided which passages we would preach on. But the first passage we will look at this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, where we will learn how the incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh, relates to our ongoing struggle with sin. And so please stand as we hear God's word read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. I trust you will follow along in your own copy of God's word and that you will give your attention to this reading of his holy word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would now bless your word by your spirit, the word that we have read, the word that will be preached, to our hearing and understanding and to our growth in the things of Christ, who is our life and in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to begin a little differently. I'm going to state to you up front and as clearly as I can what the central point of the sermon is. In order for me to do that, we have to review just a bit of history. And by that, I mean we have to go all the way back to the beginning when God created mankind. And so I'll begin for the children's sake, the way I do every year in VBS. In the beginning, God made mankind holy and happy in perfect fellowship with him. There was no barrier, no sin to separate them. They were perfect. But you know the story. Man did not remain in that condition, but he chose to rebel against God. According to the freedom that God had given to him, he chose to sin rather than to obey God. This set a course, the Bible tells us, for all of mankind. And Romans tells us that that course is defined by the doctrine or understanding of union, union with. In this sense, all of mankind flowing from Adam and Eve are in union with Adam. And so the nature that Adam took on by his sin, which is a sinful, rebellious nature, rooted in that original sin and affecting all of his posterity down to the present day and until the Lord comes again, we are, according to Romans 5 and many other places, united to Adam in that. And so his sin nature was passed on to us. Our confession says it was passed on to all by ordinary generation. That's fancy language just saying the normal activity of husbands and wives having children. Those children, because they are children of sinful parents, are themselves sinful. That ordinary pattern has continued since Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that all of mankind, without exception, possess this nature which is bent on sin and rebellion against God. This nature is rooted in what the Bible refers to as our sinful flesh or simply our humanity, who we are by nature, having been created in the image of God, now that image marred because of sin after the fall. 
And so all of us live every day, and I don't need to tell you or remind you of that, do I? You live with it. You wrestle against sin in your flesh. You struggle every single day, as I do, against the desires of the flesh, the passions of this life. And we are constantly seeking to put that to death. The great question, then, as we understand that very brief history, is this. How can that condition ever be changed? How can sinful man ever be reconciled to a holy God and live a holy life? That's the question. This is the question that faces every one of you here this morning. Because if you are still only united to Adam in his sinful nature, and you yourself possess that nature of rebellion and hostility to God, then you stand in danger of his judgment. And his judgments are clear, his judgments are true, and you will suffer for those sins, and you will be cast forever away from his presence. But there is hope, and the hope is found in another. Enter Christmas, enter the incarnation, enter Jesus, the eternal Son of God, come in human flesh. Sin and the bent towards sin that is part of who we are by nature, must be destroyed. But we are incapable of doing it because we have no power, no ability to change ourselves. Jeremiah 13, 23 asks this question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't do good not on your own, because you have a nature bent on sin. You are at enmity with God by nature. What hope then do we have? Well, we need a savior, a champion, a redeemer who would come in our likeness because this nature must be defeated in the flesh. It must be, sin must be defeated in the flesh. He must come in the likeness of Adam, and he must choose willingly the good in the flesh. By doing so, he will destroy the power of sin, having victory over it in the flesh. And then all of those who are thus united to him, as we were by nature united to Adam in his sinfulness, will ourselves be able to to have victory over sin and its power. And so here is the main point of the sermon. Jesus had to be manifested in the flesh in order to put sin to death in the flesh. And there was no other way for this to happen. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. Well, that then leads us to our passage. You know where we're going. You know what this passage says, but we'll see it again with clarity, I trust, as the Spirit blesses it to us in 1 Peter chapter 4. There are really two sections here, but as our brother last week kidded with you a little bit about subpoints and subpoints and subpoints, 
There's one point for point one, and there's a second point with three subpoints, so he's accurate. But look with me at verses one and two, and simply consider Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus Christ. The text tells us, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. People are very fond this time of year of saying, keep Christ in Christmas. We understand what that means. Some of us may agree or disagree with the statement. But nonetheless, we understand what they mean when they say, keep Christ as the focus in Christmas. But for the Christian, certainly, for the Christian, the motto must be, keep Christ in everything, in everything It's the motto of Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus in everything, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter begins here by giving us a very clear statement, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. He suffered in the flesh. If you're familiar with Peter's letters, you know that one of the main themes of his letters is the theme of suffering. He begins in chapter 1 with that idea of suffering and how God is using that suffering for our good and growth in Christ. It's one of his greatest themes, and I think for a reason, considering Peter's own life. It is as our opening hymn says, he came to earth to taste our sadness. The mark of his life was suffering. It was being persecuted. It was suffering for godliness' sake. Now, here is the great point that Peter is making. He is calling them to consider Jesus, that he suffered in the flesh, that what he did was to choose suffering instead of sin, to choose obedience to God instead of his own desires or will. Christ suffered this way in the flesh. He was willing to suffer instead of sinning. And so he says to these believers, look at that example, consider our Savior, and have the same way of thinking within you. He uses language of warfare. Arm yourselves, he says in the ESV. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Look to him. Prepare yourselves for battle against sin. The great battle that we face each day against sin and temptation begins, Peter and Paul tells us in many places, in the mind It begins with a mind that is prepared for the battle, that understands the battle is real, that understands at every moment of every day we are faced with a choice that requires us in our minds to be determined before we ever face the choices that we will choose to follow Jesus or to be obedient to God rather than to sin, even if that means suffering. That's what he's telling them. It starts with our thoughts of how prepared we are to face the battle every day. Look at the rest of this. You can see the outflow of this. 
The rest of verse 1 says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Understand what that means. The Bible clearly tells us no one ever ceases completely from sin. But what Peter is telling us here is when we choose to suffer in the flesh as Jesus did, we will not sin because that's the choice. The choice is suffer in this moment. Suffering could mean the simple rejection of the desires of our flesh in any given moment, our own desires in any given moment, our own anything, self over Christ. When we choose Christ over self, suffering as Jesus did, instead of sin, then we are ceasing in that moment from sin. That, that's the point he's making. It, it certainly has reference to Jesus who always and perfectly chose suffering instead of sin. But it also speaks to us and the battle that we face every day. It refers to that battle that we face as we set our minds on the pattern and the model that Jesus has set for us. That, that's Peter's point. And Jesus did this. This is why this sermon series is rooted the way it is. He did it in the flesh. He had to do it in the flesh. There was no other way for sin in the flesh to be defeated and overcome unless there would be one who would come in the likeness of our flesh and have victory over it. And so the admonition, the exhortation of Peter to these believers is, you must fix your minds in this. You must have this way of thinking. Now we can flesh that out, pun intended, by looking to Romans chapter 6, the passage we read earlier. I won't review it all, but I want you to, to hear a part of it again. Because it is very much an exposition of this principle that Peter is writing about. For if we have been united with him, Jesus, this is verse 5 of Romans 6. If we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The old dying, the new being raised. We know that our old self, our flesh, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, that's the question. How do we defeat this? How do we overcome this? For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, and because of our union we have, we believe that we also will live with him in newness of life. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. It's almost the same exact language. Certainly it is the same exact thought. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
realize, recognize that you have died to sin. You must consider yourselves dead to sin because Jesus suffered in the flesh, chose suffering instead of sin, and alive to God because Jesus was raised from the dead, which leads to verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see how important this is? You see how critical it is that we think the right thoughts after God. We must resolve in advance, brothers and sisters, in advance to suffer rather than sin. We must be committed to the path of suffering, if that is what God calls us to, instead of walking the path of sin. This is clearly what Peter means by arming ourselves. We cannot, we cannot wait until the choice and the moment happens. If we do, we will certainly fail because we have not properly armed ourselves, our minds, with this way of thinking. We have not been prepared for the battle. But that, Paul writes in Ephesians, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, that's the exhortation. It's very clear. And don't you sense the importance of this as Peter lays it out? Do you want to be a person who continually falls and falters at every moment when the choice before you is suffering for Jesus or sinning? Do you want to be characterized as one who continues to struggle and fall into sin day after day after day? Or do you want to be, as Peter says, verse 2, to live the rest of your time in the flesh? no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The key, the answer is Christmas. Jesus, come in the flesh. To do what? To destroy the power of sin in the flesh so that because of our union with him, we might know the power that comes through his resurrection life. Well, that's an exhortation that probably doesn't need much else, but Paul says... In the remaining verses, he gives to us, I should say, uh, three strong motivations. Here's the point. There are strong motivations, and they come under three headings. Strong motivations to live as Christ lived. Now, as I studied this week, and really the past several weeks regarding this passage, I was struck by, this is often doesn't happen, but where older commentators and modern commentators very much agree on what Paul or Peter is doing here. And that is, he is giving motivations. And most of them characterize them in this way, which is fitting for us here this morning. And that is a motivation from our past, a motivation from our present in verse 4, and then a motivation with regard to our future and the future of those who are the enemies of Christ. And so let's look at verse 3, which is a motivation from the past. 
you see it very clearly, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I don't think you could have written a more clear uh, depiction of our modern world, and this some 2,000 years ago. This is what people live for, and what Peter is saying is for you and I to take stock of our lives and to see the past as just that. Here's an easier way to put it. Isn't it time, believer, if you are a believer this morning, isn't it time that you leave aside and leave behind these fruitless and aimless works? This is what you once were. This is who you once were. This is how you once lived. Isn't it time for this to be over? Why are you still living in this? So it's a motivation from the past. You remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3? There are two places where he gives this sense. He says, whatever gain I had looking to his past, I counted for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There's no doubt in my mind that just a few verses later, he would write these words. But one thing he says I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter is saying, look to your past and be able to say, isn't it time isn't it time to leave the past in the past and to leave the sinful ways of the past, which are all opposed to God, to his word, and to what he calls us to in this life? I heard a great illustration, and I think it's so true, a great illustration from the life of John Stott, a very well-known English minister and theologian, now in glory. He said this, every single Christian, every single Christian, has a two-volume biography. The first volume contains the story of our lives before Christ. The second volume depicts our lives as a Christian. For some of us, the first volume is larger and thicker if we were converted like I was at a later age. For others, that first volume is more slender if we were converted much younger age. But, he says, make no mistake about it, Every Christian has a two-volume biography of their lives. We all have a past. We all have a place where we were living, even if we were converted as little children, where we were living for our own pleasure, our own desires, expressed by even infants in the way they get their parents' attention. And all of us know this. Even in those moments, there is an old life and so maybe your volume is very thin with respect to that. And praise be to God, the second volume, ongoing as it is today, was begun at a very early age. But many of us here this morning have two volumes. The first is actually thicker, perhaps, than the volume that's currently being worked on by God's grace. 
We have a lot in our past. And Peter is saying here, close the book. Close the book on that old life. That volume is over. The pages have been closed. A new work has begun in the person and work of Jesus and our union with him. Leave the past behind and live for the glory of God and obedience to him. The second comes from the present, our present lives, and the impact of this work of God in our lives. Notice what he says in verse 4. With respect to this, that is, their great sins, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Have you ever felt weird, strange, around people that you once knew who are unbelievers and who have witnessed the transformation of your life. I have at 19 very clear memories of becoming a Christian, of everything changing in my life and of seeing the reaction of my friends. And it's exactly this. Many of them maligned me. Many of them spoke against me. Many of them wondered why I wasn't the same. I know it's hard for you to imagine the same fun guy that I always was. <laughs> but I was. And I participated with them in all sorts of things. To my own hurt, even to this day. To my own hurt, to my own shame. But I couldn't stop what God was doing. By the grace of God, he gave me new desires I certainly never became perfect. None of us does. But there was a change in my desires, my motivations, my interests, every area of my life. As one commentator noted, everything changed. What I saw as funny was no longer funny. What I thought was sad was changed. What I knew was joyful was changed. My thoughts were changed. My desires were changed. My goals in life were changed. God had begun a work of sanctification in me, and it continues to this day. What Peter is saying is simply this. Understand that when God does this work in your life, there will be people who will be shocked and surprised that you no longer join with them in those patterns, those choices, those behaviors, but you no longer have a desire for it. It's okay to be weird Take it from one who is. It's okay to stand out. It's okay because what we're doing is serving Christ. We're obeying him. We're glorifying the God who made us and made them in all things. And so Peter says from the present and the reality of the present, understand this will happen to you. I like what one writer said. The problem actually for many Christians isn't that people are surprised when we don't participate. But the people who really know us and what God has done are surprised when we actually do. And woe be it to those who do, who walk in disobedience to God and enter right back into the first book of their lives, the first volume, instead of living out of that second volume as God has called us to live. Well, there is a future motivation as well. It's in verses 5 and 6. It's fairly straightforward again. You can see the verses there for yourself. But they will, verse 5, give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
because this is why the gospel was preached to those who are dead. Now, those who are dead, is, it's not a reference to the very mysterious passage just previous to this in chapter 3. It's not Jesus going to a place and preaching the gospel to the spirits in prison. That's a separate thing. We don't have time to go into it. It's really not what the passage is saying, but we can talk about that another time. He simply means those who have already died in the faith. They will be judged, he says, in the flesh the way people are. God will judge them for the deeds that they have done. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But here's the motivation. All those who do wickedly, wickedness, will stand before the judgment seat of God and they will pay that ultimate price. But believers are to live with respect to that future judgment, not with fear. We have no fear, for there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans says. And so we ought to just simply live our lives in the way that God calls us to live them, by his grace, in our union with Christ, having been given the victory over sin and rebellion and the power of sin in our lives. I heard another great illustration this week from the life of John Wesley, Charles's brother. We sang his opening hymn this morning. John Wesley was a circuit preacher in what would become the Methodist Church, as most of us know. And the story goes that as he was riding his horse in his circuit, going to various churches, someone approached him who themselves were deeply caught up in thoughts of the second coming of Jesus and of the need to be ready for that coming. And so he asked Wesley, Sir, what would you do tomorrow if you knew that Jesus was coming back then? Wesley paused, took out his diary, and read aloud what it was that he had already written down and planned to do tomorrow. And then turning again to the man, he said, I think that's what I'll do tomorrow. You see the beauty of that. My life is planned out. I've purposed in my heart and in my life to do only those things which are pleasing to the Lord. And I would not be ashamed if the Lord, my Savior, should come in that moment when I was taken up in the doing of the things that he has commanded me to do. That's the way we are to live our lives. There's a motivation to live them in such a way, a motivation from our future and the judgment to come. Well, you see the beautiful picture, don't you? Jesus had to come in human flesh. He had to. There was no other way for sin and the power of sin to be defeated and overthrown unless it were to be through one who bore our flesh, where he could triumph over it and win the victory for us and give us the grace to do the same. That's why Peter says what he does. Arm yourselves then. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking this is, of course, not, nor will any of them be, a typical Christmas sermon. We're not in Luke 2 or Matthew 3, but I hope you can see how important it is as you consider the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus coming in our likeness in human flesh was absolutely necessary if we are to have any hope of living, or living in the victory over sin and the flesh. So three questions to ask you very quickly as we close. Have you come to see your life as two distinct volumes? One as pre-Christ, before Christ, and one as post-Christ. I hope you have. 
It is, according to John Stott, one of the best ways to think about our lives. And it is itself a motivation to see that former life as closed and the second volume, the volume you're living in now, as being the life out of which you should receive grace and strength through Christ and your union with him. Now, for some of you here this morning, you're, you're just living with one volume. You've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never had the experience of God closing the cover of that book and beginning a new work, a new book of your life. That means you remain now in your sin and you have no power to change it. The stubbornness of sin and your willingness day after day to give into it is your destiny unless you come to faith in Jesus. Won't you consider as you think about these things during this Christmas season especially, the claims of Christ, the reason for his coming, that he came in our likeness in human flesh so that he might save sinners like you and like me, that he might give you real power, real power over sin, over temptation, over everything you face each day, and that he might begin a second volume of your life to the praise of his grace. Secondly, Christian, are you armed and prepared for battle by considering Jesus. You remember the words of Jesus. I won't read them from Luke 14. How foolish it would be for someone going out to war not to have some understanding of the enemy and what troops he has. In the same way as we consider our discipleship, it is foolish to us or for us to enter into the battles we face every day without being armed in our minds with the same way of thinking that Romans 6 speaks of and that Peter does here. And then thirdly, are you willing to suffer for Christ in order that you may not sin against him? That, that has to be our predisposed, pre-thought out preparation for every day of our lives. Wake up in the morning and let that be the first question you ask yourself. Am I willing now, this day, in this moment, to suffer for Jesus in whatever way he calls me? And again, it may be just simply denying the desires of our flesh. It may be guarding our mouths and what we say. It may be in how we interact with people who usually frustrate us. Are we willing to say at the outset, I am willing to suffer for Christ, to put sin to death by his grace in my life, rather than to sin against him. This really is the key, isn't it? Now, the victory is seen in Jesus coming in the flesh, defeating sin in the flesh. That's the victory, and that's the key. Sin or suffer, self or Christ. Every commentator that has ever written on First and Second Peter have all said the same thing. Peter has never forgotten what happened to him. He never forgot it. You can see it all throughout his letter, both letters. He never forgot that he denied his Savior when his Savior was suffering and choosing to do what he did for our sake, for his sake. Peter never forgot it, not in a self-flagellating, sort of self-condemning way. Peter understood the gospel. 
but it made such an impression upon him because he knew what the problem was. When he entered that courtyard, having resolved to his Savior, I will never deny you. He wasn't thinking about his Savior and the grace that Jesus was free to give and was willing to give, not even the fact that Jesus had prayed for him. What he was thinking about was himself, his own reputation, his own fear of suffering for him. And he was not armed with the way of thinking that he here writes about in these verses. He wasn't armed in his mind. He was lacking in this attitude. He had no resolve. He was not prepared for the trial. And three times, not once, not twice, three times. And at the end, with cursings, he denied his Savior. That is our experience if we do not have this mindset. And if we do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, our flesh, suffered and died, was willing to do that so that he might defeat sin in our flesh and then give us by his grace and our union with him the power that we need. That's why Paul ends that great section in Romans 7 the way he does. And you know how he ends it. That chapter is filled with a back and forth. I, I want to do what's right, but I find there's a, there's a power, there's an influence, there's a, a thing in me called sin that seeks out this. And you remember his question, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Since therefore, brothers and sisters, Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of your time here in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this season of the year as we focus our minds on the incarnation. And we're so used to seeing this in, in certain ways and, and being blessed by the story of Christmas. But these remarkable places in your word that tell us that this necessity of our Savior coming in the flesh was so important for us. Now, this morning, that we might live holy, godly lives the rest of our days here in the flesh, desiring and doing the will of God and not living according to the passions of our flesh. Grant us every grace we pray to that end. Strengthen us through the power that is ours, the resurrection power that lives within us, the power of Jesus and of his perfect life. We pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen.